G'day crypto goers, I am Adam Stokes. Welcome to part three of my interview with Synth from Skycoin. Thank you so much to everyone who has liked and subscribed. It really does help me appease the YouTube algorithm gods. If you're getting much out of these interviews, do leave your comments below. I read every single one of them. And if you leave me a good question for Synth, I'll be sure to put it in my next interview with him next month. I'm picking up from where we were last time, which was around the 40 minute mark. This is part three. Let's get into it. How many miners am I going to need for how long to buy a Lambo? <laughs> I, I think that's the question everyone always asks. Um, I, I saw people who did early Bitcoin mining and one guy, he, he was running a small mining pool. And when the Bitcoin price went up, he, he made enough money to buy, he was buying housing development projects. He was buying 700 houses at a time sure. too. And I think that, if we if we look at the market for for instance storing log data or uh, you know backups and offline backups, if we're able to capture a small amount of that market, I think we're it's billions of dollars. It's people. I don't even think they understand. I, I worked at a at a company and we were doing like consulting for Thomas Reuters and things like that. And uh, I I don't think people understand what these companies are paying or or the volume of data that they're storing and there's the visible internet that you see and there's the invisible part. And I think if we see any adoption at all in the corporate sector, that it's just gonna it's gonna blow their mind how the volume of you know the the economic value of what because the, what they're paying for now, if we're able to offer any service, and a company's paying ten million dollars a month for this, and we can give it to them for six million a month or four million a month, uh, and just one customer, I think that it's gonna the mining rewards are gonna be absurd at least for the first few years while we're in this exponential phase where the, the, the networks are growing and growing and growing and growing because one of the things is when you're in on something that's growing 1% per day, it's very difficult not to become absurdly wealthy. What we saw with Bitcoin, like if you bought Bitcoin at 30, did it matter if you bought Bitcoin at a dollar, $30, $100, $150, $60? I had people who complained that they bought Bitcoin at $100 and it was so expensive and it crashed 30 and like, oh, I lost all my money. I have to sell. But if you waited four years and the Bitcoin's at 16000 or $10,000, did it matter? Did you care whether you bought it at $5 or $1 or $100 or even $500? Because as long as something's growing at 1% per day, it, it just, it's absurd. It, it, the human mind cannot really understand. Um, it's like owning Apple stock when it was like a dollar and then it goes to like, you know, a trillion dollar market cap. It's just uh, the, the numbers don't make any sense. You just take a thousand dollars, you multiply it by 32,000 and, uh, and you get some absurd number that no human being could ever spend before they before they die. Well, and, further uh, to the actual wealth explosion, the, the miners themselves, as I understand is that the number one problem with ASIC miners is the power. The second problem is probably parallel depending where you live is the heat and the noise. The amount of yeah. heat and noise that comes out of these miners is, is beyond comprehension. And I've seen, you know, some people say they're going to set up a mining farm, a massive mining farm in a cave. <laughs> the heat will be okay because the cave is cold. And I'm like, well, no, no unless you have industrial uh, ventilation, it, it's, it doesn't matter. The amount of heat that is pushed out of these things until you've had your own little mining Crazy. farm, it, it is out of control. Your miners, are they, are they noisy and are they pumping out much heat and same with the electricity? Are they using much? So I personally, I like silent computers and I, and I have this, I designed this, I have this sort of aesthetic design. And what I did with this is very interesting is I chose a solid state power supply. 
with no, and we're gonna have a custom one, but this is for an LED sign transformer. And uh, there's no fan on this. It's completely silent. It also has a low hum. It's like a Japanese model and it's very reliable. This can run for like 10,000 hours without breaking. It's rated for like 40,000, 50,000 hours. So high reliability. Then each of these processors, they don't have a uh, fan. They're passively cooled. Um, and each one is under 30 watts. So I, I could have 100,000 computers in my office and there would be not one noise, not one decibel. It's completely silent. And um, so that was actually by design because what I thought, I actually, I like server rooms or I like having 100,000 computers to run stuff on, right? Because sometimes you need that. But I don't like the noise that it produces. And the power consumption is something, is something a bit different. One of the things we were looking at is we can actually, since we're running really cheap cell phone processors, so we can, each of these computers is only $10. So at the beginning, we, we, we understood how much computation we were going to need to run this network. And we had to make a decision. Are we going to use Intel Atom processors? Are we going to use expensive Xeon server, uh, Intel Xeon servers? Are we going to use AMD? And the decision I made was I, took, I looked at the most, uh, the cell phone that had the highest sales volume. And I looked at the chip and what the cost was. And I said, okay, they made 10 billion of these cell phone chips. And I, and I found out I could buy them from the manufacturer for a dollar or something like that. So I, so I said, we're gonna use these cell phone chips and we designed our software so that we could scale over an extremely large number of slower chips instead of, uh, in, so I have a computer and instead of trying to, to, to buy a $6,000 computer, I'll use a, a bunch of $10 computers. And what we found is that we were able to achieve a cost savings of about 80% over Intel. And we also found out we didn't have to have a fan, so it was quieter. And we found out that the, it was smaller and we could put, you know, it's, it has all these uh, advantages. And, and one of the things I think for, for corporations is if you look at what Google does, they have what's called fall in place. So if my computer fails, I don't go and have someone fix it and spend all this time and spend $150 an hour trying to fix the, you don't do that. You just let the computer fail. And after five years, you come up with bulldozers and you bulldoze all your servers and put in new servers. So we want if uh, if I have a hundred thousand nodes and six hundred of them failed, do I really care? Hmm. Do I even notice? It'll if I say run forty copies of this database and two of the nodes fail, I now have thirty eight copies and I'll just spin up two more copies. And so from a from an administrative perspective, as a system administrator, that makes my life a lot easier if I don't have to go in and, and try to figure out what's going on. Why did it fail? Is it this? Is it that? I'm just like, no, shut that one off. Start two new ones. And it, it, so, the, so this is like an automated uh, fallover mode that's, that's, very, that's very nice, actually, because, and it's what Google does. So I just copied it from – that's what Google does. That's what Facebook does. And I'm just copying the way that they did their administration and then moving that into the smaller, to the enterprise, to the home, to the blockchain. And that type of, comp that type of computation is very nice actually for, uh, it's, it's just a lot nicer than trying to go in the computer and you know, fix it. It's... Since my head is spinning at the way you pick that up so lightly, comparative to ASIC miners that actually weigh a fair bit, not to mention the power supply that you've got to pick up with it. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's got no fan, I guarantee yeah. when I get, and if I get my hands on some of those miners, I will give you a very 
all the people of the world I will give you and the mining community out there, I'll give a detailed review on these miners exactly um, how they're comparative to my other miners. But the sheer fact that there's no heat coming out of that, I, I, I'm just spinning. So we, uh, for a telecom system for Skywire, we actually developed a smart campus system. And this was a really old prototype. This is like two years old, but it's like a, we have an antenna and we had a 2.4, five gigahertz dipole emitter and then a, a parabolic uh, dish, which is actually plastic that it's sprayed, uh, plastic sprayed with metal particles to make it conductive. And then I have two like Nemo motors from a 3D printer to control it in the XY axis. And if I have two buildings, I can actually just throw these antennas on the roof and it will connect the two buildings automatically. So um, the networks, the antennas, I have like a GPS chip, they can scan for other antennas, connect to them. So instead of, if I want to wire two buildings together, instead of having to go and lay fiber optic cable under the ground and like dig holes, we actually just throw antennas on the roof. They connect to each other, and it acts like a like an airborne fiber optic network. That was and that's the called last the Skywire. Mile. Was that the last mile problem that you were talking about? Is that am I saying that right? The last mile. Yeah. So we found out that in the residential, uh, we can basically give everyone on in the United States gigabit internet for ten twenty dollars a month. The only cost is not the bandwidth; it's the permits and digging up you know, roads and who's going to own the fiber optic cable. And, and, and basically every person has fiber with uh, fiber optic cables within one to five kilometers of their house. But to actually get the everyone wired up, to get 10,000 homes wired up costs more money, like costs uh, dozens or hundreds of times more money than um, actually just getting the fiber optic cable within five kilometers. So we just run fiber optic cable down all the major intersections and everyone's close to fiber optic cable and it's cheap because you had to repair the road, you had to put an electrical infrastructure. So while they did that, they put in fiber, fiber optics and it cost them almost nothing. But now if you want to wire up 10,000 houses, it costs millions of dollars uh, in terms of digging up things, permits, construction, tearing up the sidewalks. So we're trying to figure out, a, I think in the 5G or the 6G, we're going to, the problem that we're facing is just connecting the house to uh, sort of some type of local area network so that we can get their, the bandwidth to these uh, fiber optic hookups. And if we're able to do that, we can reduce the cost of the residential broadband service by like 90%. So. I think about it to me when I first heard you talk about this, I thought, wow, think of cities like Europe where you've got these, you know, immensely historical and protected cities. You, you can't start chipping down a 500-year-old building to start to run fiber optic. And I think this is where that system that you just explained will work absolutely beautifully. Your hardware looks awesome. Your wallets, moving on to your wallets, Cynthia, um, your hardware wallets look great. But is it true that you've teamed up with Ledger for storage on their wallets too? How's it going? The Ledger integration is finally done. We, so we're going to be on, Skycoin will be on Ledger very soon. And all the coins that are based on Skycoin will also be on Ledger. And uh, that's exciting. But we also have our own hardware wallet. So one of the things is we, we have 30 hardware projects right now. And it's, it's just crazy. I can't even uh, paper somewhere. I have, so I, we did a lot of, um, let me just grab one of these. This is like crazy. I, I had to have them do reports because I don't even know like what the hell they're doing so like this is our SOC this is the second generation um, Skyminer 
before the boards were this big, we have a CPU now this big. It's smaller than a credit card. It's extremely cheap. And uh, that's going to be in all of our networking equipment. It's going to be all in all of our things. Now, if this I'm, is uh, sorry, but while you're going through that, did if I store my this is what I found with storing my Skycoin at the moment. Of course, if I leave it on the exchange, that's dangerous. But if I don't put it in the yeah. right wallet, I'm not getting my Sky hours. If I put a yeah. Skycoin in a Sky wallet, oh, there you go. Am I still getting my this Sky hours? Yeah, as long as you don't have it on the exchange, as long as it's in your wallet or your hardware wallet, you get your hours. So we have all these hardware projects, and uh, one of them is our hardware wallet. So we made a very cheap uh, hardware wallet, and the only purpose of the hardware wallet is to allow people to steal their coins without getting them stolen. And this is actually a huge problem, even today, 10 years after Bitcoin, because one of the things we found out is um, people always, I, I, I go to a conference, I talk to 20 people, and all 20 of them had had one guy had 150,000 in Ethereum and he lost it. So with the Skycoin community, we want to end all the security issues, like zero hacks. So what we did was we made a seed system and you write down your seed. And as long as you have a seed, you can never lose your coins. Even if you don't have a computer, you write down the seed, you put it in a safe, you write it on a piece of paper, you will never lose your coins. As long as you have that seed, you will have access to your wallet. And we made that by default. Because, and we, we force people to say, write down the seed. Don't create a wallet without writing the seed down. I make two copies, put them in a safe. Because we know that two years later, someone's going to come back and they're going to be like, how do I get, oh, I bought Skycoin. I'm a millionaire now, but I, I, I can't find my Skycoin. It's lost. I deleted, I deleted the file on my computer. We don't want that to happen. The other thing is we want people to uh, be able to use Windows without having their coins stolen every week. So... I know, remember my Ethereum and all these web wallets and they all of them, every single exchange, every wallet, every application was eventually hacked and had their coins stolen. So we actually developed a hardware wallet, which cost $10. And um, that hardware wallet stores the private keys on a chip and the, they never leave the, the uh, private key never leaves the chip. So if your computer is hacked, if it's compromised, if you have a hundred thousand, you know, you click the wrong link, uh, on, on some website and hijacks your computer, you will not lose your Skycoin. And then we're expanding the hardware wallet to Bitcoin and Ethereum. And we're, um, and there's, so this is, I think, just necessary. I think that we, if, if you really look at Bitcoin, it doesn't make sense to have a $100 hardware wallet. If, ever, if you're going to have 2 billion people on earth that have crypto assets, we're going to need a hardware wallet cost $3, $5, $10. And do you remember that, that, that game like Shadowrun and you have the cred stick and they have like a USB stick and you put your yeah. money on it. You can yeah. go to the ATM and pull them, pull money out or put money on the cred stick. And that's basically what we, what we're doing with this thing is it's just like a, it's like a USB stick that just stores money. Like a cheap thumb drive, but a lot more secure. So would I, would I be better off as a everyday user buying your wallet or getting a ledger, which can do more than just a Skycoin wallet? I think both. I, I have like four hardware wallets. I think that you should try all the new products and you should just keep on, keep on, you know, one's good for this, one's good for that. You know, it's a different, different applications. And of course I can buy these wallets through your website at skycoin.net. I think the first dev version is now currently there. It was supposed to launch three months ago, but we, 
we actually found some issues. We started with the, the Trezor firmware and we had to add security. So we found out that there was like an entropy, there's like, you know, random number generators and things like that. And we found some issues with the Trezor that we weren't happy with, uh, some oversights. And so we ended up having to fix this and fix that. And, uh, um, Trezor hasn't been hacked yet, luckily. No, no one's really had any problems with Trezor, but I think it's uh, just in case. Why did you write your own programming language? So I had a lot of people screaming at me, like, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why don't you just use Java? Why don't you blah, blah, blah? Because it really does take four, five, six years to develop a new language from scratch, and then up to 10 years before people are actually using it. Um, and so we started this, like, the CX language four or six years ago, and it really came out of my experience with video game development. So I, there was certain things I liked about C, certain things I liked about Golang and C Sharp, and there were things that were completely missing from the language, like, uh, um, like if I was writing a script, I'd have this language, and if I wanted to write the, the game engine, it would be in this language. And I couldn't write the same thing in each of the languages, because one was interpreted and one was compiled, and it had all these problems. But for video game development, I never bothered... Uh, when I was doing like hedge fund stuff and video game development, I never asked like, oh, I'm going to develop my own programming language. But once we got into blockchain, I didn't have a choice. And the reason was that the blockchain technology was so new and it had so many requirements that, that couldn't be met by traditional languages. It had to be deterministic. If I run this app on this computer and I run the same app on another computer with the same input, I needed the same output. It needed, it needed to not be compiled or interpreted. We have a new paradigm. It's not compiled, it's not interpreted at all. It's like, uh, it's, so is it functional, is it procedural, is it what? It's, it's something completely new. Um, and this, this language, um, the, the idea was we'd have these, uh, uh, another thing, we'd, uh, we'd have these atomic operators that modified the program state, like meta operators, and we start with a null object, which is a program with nothing in it, and we build up a program by applying a set of meta operators. And um, so the, the, what this did is it allowed us to do things like embed code inside the programming language at runtime. And uh, code that was embedded at runtime was the same as any other code. And we also, uh, there were things that I liked for maintainability, like uh, I didn't li I like, I liked the directly cyclic uh, import graphs. I didn't like this giant tangle of code. So things like that, reflection. If I wanna go into a software module and I want to um, get the list of functions in that module, um, I should be able to do that or get the number the and a lot of the programming languages didn't actually have these reflection primitives But for 0.1% of the code we needed the reflection primitives another thing is uh, canonical serialization if I was doing a lot of data manipulation I needed to a uh, way of serializing data in and out of the program and I a lot of the programming language is actually really bad at this at having a canonical data representation format so we standardized that in library, which C, C didn't do or C++ didn't do. And once you get into blockchain programming, once we have 5,000 million blockchains and they're all exchanging data, do I want there to be 5 million different data exchange formats? If you just look at how many RPC formats, data exchange formats, data representation formats there are for the existing programming languages, you realize that it doesn't matter what you're choosing, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So we made these as a default language feature because... I realized we, we're building distributed systems and there was no way that we're going to be able to build distributed systems uh, if we have 400 different protocols for data exchange. There has to be one protocol, it has to be elegant, it has to be simple, it has to be able to cover 95% of what the average developer needs to do 
It has to be easy to use. It has to be easy to learn. It can't be complicated. It, it can't use up all the CPU. And so just the data format that had those requirements, we realized that it's related to the programming language. It has to be in the programming language. And another thing we realized is we're going into this, the reason it's called CX, which sounds sort of like sex, or like sexy, like CXE will be the next version of the, you know, CX. The reason it's CX is it's C10, or the successor to the C language. And um, the, the, it was the C, or C next, the next C. Because this language, what we realized is people are developing, have different types of applications, have different types of CPU architectures now. We have multiple, multiple core CPUs. We have architectures where I have 60 CPUs, but they all have their own memory. I have DNA computers, quantum computers. I have uh, what's called a multiprocessor, which is a, it's a, a type of computer used in like radar, distributed anti-aircraft radar defense systems. I have different types of, of models of computation. And eventually AI, uh, like neural networks and, and deep learning and GPUs. And I wanted one language that no matter what type of computation I was doing could represent any type of computation in one syntax. And so this wasn't a, so what we did was we created what's called atomic, atomic operations. And the atomic operations depend upon what you're executing it on. So if you're executing on a DNA computer, it's a different set of atomic operations than if you're executing a computer uh, on a quantum computer, than if you're executing on a single core computer, than if you're executing on an embedded system. So for instance, an embedded system has atomic operations for integer addition and multiplication, but doesn't have atomic operations for a floating point. So we wanted to have a, a programming language where I could take uh, primitives at the very lowest level and remove them or add them. Um, and this is sort of crazy, but there's actually programming languages that, that do this. And, uh, and this is necessary. And people say, well, why'd you do that? Why'd you have to do that? Couldn't you have done this? And the answer is no, we couldn't have because the things that we're going to be doing with this blockchain program, with these blockchains and embedded systems and IoT, the things that we're doing cannot be done elegantly in the current programming languages. So we had, so I just decided that the easiest thing would, even if it took us four years, six years, the easiest thing would we fix that we fix all these problems because if we didn't fix these problems, it was going to slow us down later. And one of the things, for instance, if I have an embedded processor, it might have, you know, maybe 64 megabytes uh, of memory. It might have one core, and uh, and that's it. You know, and I'm going to put that CPU in a sneaker, or I'm going to put that CPU in a light bulb, or I'm going to put that CPU in a doorknob, or I'm going to put that, I'm going to have a light switch, and the light switch is going to have a CPU, and it's going to talk to my lights. And my lights are going to be programmable, and they're going to be able to change color, and the lights are going to have to sync with my audio system. And what we're looking at with IoT is we're going to have 40 trillion devices wired up. There's going to be 10,000 CPUs connected to the internet for every human being on earth. Your sneakers are going to be talking to your smartwatch. It's going to be talking to your cell phone. It's going to be talking to your laptop. It's going to be controlling your lights. It's going to be uh, interacting with your sound system. The, I'm going to be playing my, my audio file is going to be on this computer. The device playing the audio file is going to be on this computer. And my speakers, my 300 speakers are going to be each individual CPUs. And they're all going to have to communicate with each other seamlessly you know this is what we're building is this this new world this iot the the 5g the 6g the, the smart city the uh the, the this idea that we're gonna have all these robots running around delivering packages and flying through the air and we're this is the the future that we're building is really a future built upon um 
putting motors and sensors in every single object. We don't have books anymore. We have iPads, you know? And so what, what, I, what I found out is if I wanted to actually, just a simple example, have my file over here, this thing playing the file, and these are the speakers that are uh, playing the file, and then I also have to synchronize the lights in a room, right? I have 600 computers now just to play, I'm playing my MP3 file, and my lights have to be synchronized with my music, and, my, and the file's over here, and the thing playing the file's here, and the speaker, the 300 speakers for my six-dimensional Dolby surround sound are, are over here, and all these things have to be synchronized, communicating with each other, exchanging data, and cooperating towards the goal. So I, I have a distributed system now who with 600 computers that is more, just playing an MP3 file, which is more complicated than anything that you can currently, that we're doing with a computer right now. It's just, uh, it's just it goes beyond cloud, it goes beyond, uh, and this is gonna be the reality that we're living in soon. It's gonna be, your room is gonna know if you're in the room, and if you're out of the room, it's gonna turn off the air conditioning. It's gonna turn off the light. You go back in the room, it's gonna turn on the air conditioning. You're gonna have a profile. You say, I like my air conditioning at 70 degrees. Your wife likes it at 74 degrees. And depending on who's in that room, it's going to dynamically change the air conditioner. And it's going to change the air conditioner based upon the power price to optimize the grid. And it's going to, it's going to do all these. You're going to have a personal profile. And if you go into someone else's building, that profile is going to follow you as an individual. So it's not just going to be my smart city or my smart house. It's going to also follow you to your neighbor's house. So this, this is the future that we're going to be living in 20, 30 years from now. And to build that system to, to actually enable these applications is cannot be done with the current programming languages. And I, and I thought about how do I do this? How do, and what it came back to was the video game development. Because when I had a video game, I, had a, I, I made this little game for children and we had a massive multiplayer online world and you have thousands of things going on, like plants growing and, and uh, you know, monsters spawning and attacking people or the monster gets scared and it runs because it's daylight, but it's night, so the monster attacks you, you know, things like that. So you have behavior, you have, uh, oh, the monster doesn't see you, so it just ignores you, but, oh, it saw you, so now it's going to, its behavior changed, now it's going to attack you. You know, so you have, a, you have things that are interact, millions of things that are running around, interacting with an environment, they have to be synchronized over a network, you have timing constraints, they have, you know, limited CPU resources, and this is really the, the model for IoT that, that we're entering. So I, I wanted to say, I wanted my own programming language because I needed to be able to control every one of these factors from how the garbage collector worked to whether it was real time to uh, that it would make sure that it was mathematically deterministic to determining how data having a canonical data exchange format for all of these things that are going to be running. And I realized if I didn't have that control at that level, that everything above that, you have to have a solid foundation, basically. If you're gonna build a house, you need a solid foundation. If you build something on six layers of shit, that's just like a glued together with duct tape, it's gonna, your, your house is gonna fall in. So we, I wanted the, the foundation to be concrete and immutable. And so what we did was we implemented a programming language, but it, it's only two or 3,000 lines of code. It, it's very simple, but what it does is everything. There's nothing it can't do. So I'm very happy at what, what came out of it. We have people doing like genetic algorithms and AI and machine learning. Some guy wrote a 3D, 3D game engine called uh, CXFL, uh, CX, how do you say it? CX, CXFX and CXO. Yeah. So we have CXFX, which is a 3D game engine. So I can have someone write Counter-Strike now and embed it on blockchain. 
it, which is crazy. Like, why why would I write why would I write a first person shooter and then put uh, and put it on blockchain? It's because you can, because language is that powerful. So CFX is an extension to CX. The library, it's just the library. And everything that you've just described with the AI, does that mean that could compete with the IOTA token, with the IOTA blockchain? 